This is Faster, a podcast by Flow Cycle. In each episode, we interview industry experts to educate you, challenge you, and even change the way you train so you become faster. Pedaling. It's something most of us learn to do at a young age. We don't give it much thought. Our legs just seem to know how to do it. There's much debate in cycling on the perfect pedal stroke, crank arm length, optimal cadence, and much more. Today on Faster, we speak with Dr. Jim Martin from the University of Utah. Jim's career has focused on pedaling, and he dispels some of the age-old rumors floating around the cycling community. Pedaling is something we are wired to do, and giving it too much thought actually causes us to slow down. Listen to this episode to learn about pedaling efficiency, metabolic cost, and what role our joints play in powering our pedals so you can become faster. When we're not creating this podcast, we're working on other ways to make you faster. At Flow, we design and manufacture some of the world's fastest cycling wheels that we sell consumer direct to keep more money in your pockets. As a special thank you for listening to Faster, we wanted to offer you 20% off your next purchase. Simply use coupon code PODCAST in all capital letters at checkout. Your purchase will also support our Give Back initiatives. 1% of all sales supports our Bike for a Kid program, where we provide bikes and helmets for kids in need. We also plant one tree for every wheel we ship as a thank you to our planet. Enjoy the show. Dr. Jim Martin, welcome to Faster. Hello, John. Thanks for having me. Hey, listen, we're really uh, happy to have you on here. It's kind of funny how we met. I was talking to uh, Andy uh, over at Garmin, who started Alpha Mantis back in the day. And I was talking to him about a few things about the show. And then he mentioned your name and and then I looked you up and I realized all of the connections that you have that I also have. And I just couldn't believe that after me being around for 10 years in this industry that I, we had not met before. So I started looking into your stuff. We, we reached out, we talked before the show and uh, I'm just super excited to have you on here because your body of work and your research is in some ways it reminds me of some of the things that we do. There's, there seems to be a, a lot of myths in the cycling community, especially around, you know, aerodynamics and weight and all those different things, rolling resistance, tire pressure, and you're looking at it from the, you know, cycling efficiency, pedaling efficiency, and all of these different things. And I know there's just a ton of uh, things out there as, as well. So I'm really excited to have you here. We're going to ask you some questions that I think have been floating around the cycling community for just a number of years. And you're kind of the authority in the space on on what this all means. So we're excited to have you here. Oh, gosh, that's, uh, that's very flattering. I, um, I'll do my best to live up to that. Excellent. Perfect. So just for those of us that don't know you, I know that you're a university or a professor at the University of Utah. What's a little quick background on yourself? Oh, okay. So I, I uh, started my professional life as a mechanical engineer, professional engineer. And um, uh, during that time, I also took up bike racing. Um, I really and truly loved it. And um, uh was a was a reasonably not too bad match sprinter. I won Masters Nationals uh, one year, and uh, then I had always had this notion that I want to be a professor. And uh, so after after uh, winning that title, I kind of decided, well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend all my time training anymore, and uh, so I might as well to go to grad school. And and I actually did enter grad school in engineering, but uh, I had met Ed Coyle uh, through my training partner who had done a study in his lab. And we started having these brown bag lunches to talk about training. And 
Well, one thing and another, and I ended up switching from engineering to exercise science. Uh, got my master's and PhD and uh, got this faculty position shortly after that. And here I am 20 years later. So in those brown bag lunches that you're, you're talking about, you, you clearly made a decision to move to sort of exercise physiology and biomechanics. What was it about the topic that made you switch directions? Huh. Okay. Uh, so, so, I mean, I loved it, right? I, I loved cycling. I was coaching some of the people I had previously competed against. <clears throat> and so really I spent all my time daydreaming about, you know, sprint power, muscular power and sprinting, sprint cycling. And, um, so in these, in these brown bag lunches, uh, Trey Gannon and I, my old training partner, we would speak our bikey jargon, uh, to Ed and Ed would very patiently listen to us and then translate it back into physiology uh, so that, you know, we could then make reasonable decisions about how to approach things. And, and then there, there's actually a twist to it. Uh, I, I, did, I did love the idea, but I questioned how important it was. And one day in my engineering job, I was talking to a, a co-worker named Brad Wentworth. And I, I said, you know, I love this exercise science stuff, but shit, man, it's just not important, said I. Um, you know, clean air, clean water, this is the kind of work I'm doing in grad school, that's important. That's truly important. If, if let, you know, what's the best that can happen? You, you become the most knowledgeable, you know, cycling physiologist or cycling biomechanist on the face of the earth. And the only thing that happens is the person you work with wins and somebody else gets second. That, that's not important. And, and Brad held, just gave me the hand, right? Held his hand right up in my face. And he said to me, breakthroughs in every field have ripple effects across all fields. And breakthroughs are made by people who are passionate about what they do. You should change to exercise science. And I did. That's just like the, uh, when the four mi minute mile was broken and running, you know, nobody believed it was possible. Nobody believed it was possible. And all of a sudden someone broke it. I forget the guy's name who broke it. And then that ripple effect people, it was falling like crazy after that. So that's a really, that's really good advice. I, I think that's, that's pretty awesome that he gave you that advice. So, you know, when we first started talking, you know, I'd heard that you had had some papers and, and uh, I asked you to send me some stuff. And I thought maybe there was a mistake at first because I couldn't believe how many you sent me. I thought there was like a duplication <laughs> problem. So I went through them and, I, you know, again, I'm impressed. And in some of your papers, you're using some, some terminology um, that I just kind of want to define before we get into some of the questions. Because I think some of our listeners may actually have some questions about, you know, what that means. One of the things you talk about a lot are maximal and submaximal performance testing. Can you just describe maximal and submaximal so that the listeners understand what that means? Sure. And, and I, I know that it's, it's very easy to confuse. So, so in our lab paradigm, maximal means an all-out sprint. Uh, short bursts, uh, we, we do a lot of data collection for three seconds, sometimes six. Um, and so this... We do that to uh, get a measure of maximum muscular power uh, without fatigue. 
Uh, now, we also separately study fatigue during maximal efforts of, of up to 30 seconds. And, and in those, again, you start all out everything you can possibly do. Every single pedal stroke uh, is as hard as you can do it at that instant in time. And they, those are really brutal protocols. Uh, when we say submax, those studies are mostly done below lactate threshold. And you have to do that in order to make accurate uh, calculations of efficiency, uh, which is the ratio of mechanical power to metabolic power. Um, and efficiency is generally in the range of 18 to 25% uh, during cycling. Now, a few of our studies have been hard time trials. Uh, and those are above lactate threshold and they, they take you to add or near failure by the end. And so in, in some ways, those are maximal in the context of endurance effort. And I, I suspect that most of your listeners will be, will, will be more likely to think of maximal as a 10 or 20 minute maximal effort. And so, so that's, that's very different than uh, the three second sprinting. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, and your test too, I know that a lot of the stuff that you're doing in the lab, is any of the stuff that you're testing, are you doing anything on road? Um, we have done just a little bit on the road, actually not on a road, on a taxiway at the Texas A&M uh, airport. <laughs> yep. uh, and then also, oh, one, two, three, I guess three papers or so. Um, in a velodrome. Oh, and I take that back. Um, Mark Quaddy's paper um, was was from um, uh, Grand Tour data. So, uh, but we were just, I was just working with the power data that he gave me. Um, so yeah, it comes from all over. Lab, taxiway, velodrome, Grand Tours. Good. I like that. I like a mixture of both, you know, it kind of gives you a, a real good view of what that looks like. So one of the things that is is so talked about in cycling is the idea of pedaling efficiency. I mean, we cover everything from, you know, um, the cadence, the crank length, the what muscles you're supposed to use, where you're supposed to fire from, where you're supposed to drive from. And there's so much of your work is based on this. And so I just kind of want to get into these questions. And a lot of them are based on, you know, these myths that we hear. And, and you you, like you say, we talked before the show and you're going to say that there's some stuff here that... You're just going to kind of dispel, and that's we'd love to hear some of these things. So let's just start off with with the basics. Can you define the components that determine pedaling efficiency? What are, what are we starting with? What's our base point? Oh, okay. Uh, well, so for efficiency, uh, really the the dominant factor there is muscle fiber type distribution, um, and those are studies that have come out of Ed Coyle's lab, uh, in which he shows that. Um, those with higher percentage of slow twitch fibers are more efficient and with as opposed to less efficient with fast twitch fibers. Um, so so that's the number one factor. And and by the way, um, there's seems like there's some debate in human physiology, but um, it's really well known that if you 
do really high volumes of training. And the model for this is called chronic stem in an animal model. Uh, you'll convert uh, fast to slow twitch fiber. And, and I, if you look at the protocols used in animal models, which are, you know, between, well, they, they generally start at about six to eight hours a day for stimulation. You actually find athletes doing exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, the pros go to Mallorca in the preseason uh, and do these, these uh, you know, six and eight hour rides every day. And that, I, I'm not sure what they think that does, but what, one of the things for sure that it does is it's probably increasing their percentage of, of slow twitch fiber. Um, so, so that's one aspect. The other one is that we've reported is the speed of the pedal. So how fast does the, the pedal go around in its circle? And that, if, if you just had one crank length, you could just talk about cadence. But um, because we look at a lot of different crank lengths, it, it turns out it's not the cadence and it's not the crank length in and of themselves. It's the combination which, which gives you pedal speed. Okay. So let's talk about crank length and pedaling efficiency because, you know, I can hear every argument from short crank lengths to long crank lengths to, you know, in the middle. What, how does crank length play into pedaling efficiency? Well, only in the way that it combines with um, uh, cadence to give you pedal speed. Um, our studies, we've, we've done, um, oh God, I don't know, it's got to be five or six papers now on crank length. And um, so in, in the very first one we did, we used crank links from 120 to 220 millimeters. Um, and we showed that there was almost, there was no difference between 195 and 145 and 170. And when you went to the extremes, the 120 and 220, there was about a 4% decrease in maximal power. Uh, so, so very little influence on uh, maximal power. And then we've also done, and this is uh, John McDaniel's uh, master's thesis, uh, we looked at um, crank length and metabolic efficiency. And so we, we only, only <laughs> for your cycling audience, uh, did 145 through 195 uh, because we knew that that didn't alter muscular power. Uh, and we found that crank length had uh, simply no effect on efficiency. Now the pedal speed did, uh, so that, but, but it was the speed, not, not the crank length or the cadence per se, only the combination. Okay. So you talked earlier about the, how there's the, the, the couple components for pedaling efficiency, one being the, the muscle types, you know, fast twitch and slow twitch. And then you talk about, you know, pedaling speed and cadence. So is a crank length optimized between sort of that 145 and that 195, is that individual specific or have you tested, you know, like a tall person and a short person and given them both differences, both different, change the length of their crank uh, arms and, and, and not seen a difference? Is that sort of in their head or is there actually something that's individually specific to help somebody get faster? Okay. So really two, the, the, the answer, but there, there's two sides to that. So yeah, in my dissertation, I specifically went out of my way to recruit short and tall riders. Uh, I had 
a six sixer in the study and a five four ish guy. Uh, so so yeah, we we went across the spectrum, and um, what what was funny about that study? Uh, um, so this was at the University of Texas where you simply cannot park. They, they, <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> so, so they all drove, rode their bikes to the lab, of course. So they ride to the building, come up in the elevator and then they would, they would do my testing on, you know, the, the, whatever was the crank length that day. And they would all make fun. Every single one of them, there's 16 subjects. They all made fun of the crank they were on when, when they got on the short cranks, they all spontaneously did the circus bear song, you know, <laughs> and, and when, when they were on the long cranks, they would make something like, whoa, whoa, whoa. and, 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 you know, I just worked along with them and then they do the test and, oh goodness, what do you, what do you, what do you, what a surprise. It doesn't make any difference. But then they would, I, I would say goodbye. Right. And they would go home. Well, then, then they all, came to me later and said, you know, it was funny. I, I make fun of the cranks, but then I get back on my bike that I've been riding for 10 years. And those, those cranks felt funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, you know, a, a 20 minute protocol in my lab reset their perception of what was an appropriate crank. Wow. So, so that, that I think that's not a finding we put in the paper, but I, I think it's really powerful. So when you think about cadence, you know, one of the things you hear in, in, you know, cycling groups too, is that some people are grinders and some people are, you know, they got fast legs and they, they turn over really quickly. What is there, is there any, you know, benefit to somebody or is it that really a personal thing? If you, if you want to be in a, you know, a more difficult gear and grind versus somebody who wants to spin at a higher cadence, is there any change in efficiency there? Sure. Uh, so, so, um, that there's really two parts to that. Uh, I, I believe that um, the slow twitch, uh, people with higher percentage of slow twitch fibers will tend to naturally select lower cadence and, and vice versa for high, uh, high percentages of fast twitch. Um, the other thing though is that the most efficient cadence um, in a, on average turns out to be around 60 RPM which, you know, no pro cyclist and no, you know, whatever category three cyclist is going to ride, uh, at least if they've got the gears to shift out of that. Um, so, so, um, it turns out that efficiency, yes, it's important, but if you look at, say for instance, the, the world hour record, you know, if you look at all the world hour records set for a hundred years, except for Graham O'Brien, uh, everybody pedaled between 98 and 102 RPM for the hour. So there's if efficient and there's effective. Um, and the, the two are not the same. You know, it's funny you say that there, I was doing some research a while back on, um, torque and, and, and things like that around pedaling. And there are some athletes that peak out at 2,200 Watts, but their cadence is in the two hundreds. And that just, blew me away that people can actually turn the legs over that fast. But now that you're talking about the hour record and between being between that, you know, that 98 and that 102, um, you know, that would be a very rare case that you would be that high cause you just can't sustain it that long. Yeah. 
So, 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 yeah, two two things there. Twenty two hundred watts is that that would be sort of um, typical, uh, not particularly exceptional, world class athlete. Uh, I, I've seen data of up to twenty eight fifty ish in a BMX rider, uh, and he he wasn't heavy. He was probably eighty kgs. So phenomenal power to weight ratio. Uh, and then if, and then, you know, if, if you look at match sprinters, you know, I've seen 26 ish, uh, pr pretty, pretty frequently. Um, and th those are all seated. Those are seated values, not standing. It, it, obviously it's going to go up when they stand. Wow. That that's, that's crazy. That, uh, 2,800 Watts. That's a, that's quite a, that's quite a strong pedaling stroke. Um, are there any differences for pedaling efficiency during Submaximal and maximal cycling. Do do things change physiologically or from a from an output perspective to change that efficiency? Um, so so I guess two ways to answer that, and we'll we'll go back to efficiency versus effectiveness. Uh, you you can't. It's not possible to evaluate efficiency during sprinting, um, at least not with typical techniques, uh, because you have to be below lactate threshold in order to get an accurate uh, measurement of metabolic power uh, to compare against mechanical power. So you, you just can't do it during sprinting. Um, if we want to talk about effective, uh, then, yeah, so, so um, most people tend to reach their maximum power. So that there's a, there's a quadratic power pedaling rate relationship uh, that, that peaks somewhere in the range of 125 RPM. Um, you know, real slow twitchers will be down around 100. And, you know, I've, I've seen a, a world-class high jumper actually came to my lab at Texas, when I was at Texas, and did, um, his, his optimal pedaling rate was 160, 163, I think. It was insane. Um, but, you know, this guy, so you're looking at, at the extremes of the, you know, 80 plus percent slow twitch versus probably 90 plus percent fast twitch. Is there uh, one thing that you hear a lot about too is osymmetric chain rings. Have you ever looked at osymmetric chain rings? Are they, is there any benefit to them? Oh goodness. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. We, yes, we've looked at them. So, so Chi Hoi Leong uh, did his PhD with me. He, he's now at um, central kinetic state. Connecticut state. There we go. And um, the beauty of having Chi Hoi do that study was that he's a rock climber. He, he, he doesn't own a bicycle <laughs> or didn't at the time. So he had, he had no stake in it. He didn't care what the results showed. And so we did our best to uh, blind the subjects to the, the chain ring condition. We looked at round and rotor and, and osymmetric. And he, he did um, maximum sprint power and also efficiency. And um, so for, for maximum power, uh, there was no effect except that the osymmetrics kind of hurt you at higher RPM, you know, on, on the, you know, like 160 and above, which you wouldn't probably do. Um, and uh, what, what was really interesting about why they didn't make a difference for sprinting is that we we did full full biomechanics on this, and the the cyclists changed the way they did their ankling. 
And it wasn't very much. Uh, but you also have to remember that non-round chain rings, they're not, they don't impart that much of a difference. Um, and so by, by a small change in the ankling action, everybody in our study eliminated the effect of the chain ring from ever reaching their knee or their hip. So they, they just, and, and, and on OSIM, I think it's OSIM site, it might be Rotor, I'm pretty sure it's OSIM. They say it, it takes a little while to get used to it. And so in my lab, we say it, it takes only a very little while to get rid of it. So, so you're basically changing your ankling and by changing your ankling, you're getting the, you're ad, basically adapting or absorbing that change in shape, which doesn't make it to the knee or hip you're saying. And so there's no, there's no effect because the upper part of the limb is not changing its movement in any way. Yeah, that that's right. And, and that's important because, you know, the most muscular power is produced at the hip and the knee. And so if you don't change their kinematics, you're not going to change their, their ability to produce power. Um, yeah, so, so they, they don't do anything for sprinting, uh, despite their claims. And then if you, at least in our study, they didn't, I guess I should leave it open that somebody else might find something different. Uh, the, um, for for um, submaximal, this was really interesting. Um, they they actually did make a difference in the kinematics. So the 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 cyclist did not cancel the effect during submaximal. So it did in fact change the knee and hip kinematics as well as the ankle. But again, you got to keep in mind that the effect is is just small and it the, those biomechanical effects are small they did not affect efficiency at all uh in, in fact i have this memory of of chi hoy sending me his first round of of um you know data with with a figure in it and i looked at the figure and i my perception was that it was just one data set and i, I emailed him back saying where's the other two chain rings <laughs> And, and he, he said, no, no, they're there. It, it's one line. And then I, I realized, oh, I, I, I see that it's hidden. You got to click on it to, to realize that, that there's three different markers there. Uh, so um, now I will say this. So, so, so keep in mind, this is very, very carefully controlled biomechanical studies. Um, and there, um, one reason that a lot of people might be claiming that um, that OSIM or Rotor or Absolute Black or whatever uh, will increase their power is because they actually see it on their power meter. Uh, and, and that's actually um, uh, due to the, to, way, to the way that power meters measure power. So they, power meters measure torque uh, you know, at fairly high frequency, but they don't measure angular velocity at high frequency. They only measure angular velocity every single rev when you, when you pass the magnet, or in some cases twice, if you got two magnets. Um, but what happens is the, the, um, the non-round chain ring slows down the crank angular velocity, which of course increases the torque, but decreases the velocity. Uh, it, but, but if you, if you average 
over the cycle, you get more data points in that extension, high, high torque phase, but then you inappropriately uh, multiply it by a higher crank angular velocity. Um, and, and then um, therefore higher power. Yeah. And, and so they overestimate by, by three or 4%. And, and this is well known in the, in, in blogs, you can, you can find this easily. Uh, but there it's, it's still pervasive. There's, there's still a denial or, or something. In fact, I, I just reviewed a, a paper recently from a, a really good lab where they didn't know about it and they, they had, you know, positive findings and of about three or 4%, <laughs> which I, I, I even prefaced it to the editor. I said, I, I hate to be the guy who says this, but they're reporting bias. They're, they're not reporting an effect. And um, I hope that scientist doesn't um, listen to this and <laughs> I've, I've <laughs> yeah, just outed sure. myself. Yeah. So is there, is there anything that somebody can do to increase their pedaling efficiency? Because, you know, what I'm hearing you say is if your chain rings are be, or your crank arms are between 145 millimeters and 195 millimeters, really the body's sort of adapting and the efficiency is really not changing that much. So I, it sounds like you just need to be on your bike and you need to ride. Uh, and it kind of takes care of itself. Yeah. What, what was, what was it? Merck's whose, whose three tenants for training were ride your bike, ride your bike, ride your bike. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Um, so, so the, yeah. So now we're, we're going to let pedaling technique raise its ugly head. Um, so as you and your, your listeners will know there is a lot of, there are a lot of articles, there are book chapters, there are blogs, everything, all about the importance of pedaling technique and how you, you should push over the top and scrape the mud at the bottom and, and pull up on the back and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, when I was a cyclist, I bought into all that. I, I thought about those things and tried to do this or that. Um, but every study uh, which has ever evaluated changes in technique uh, has shown that, you know, if, if you give instructions, you, you can, in fact, change how someone pedals. It's, it's, you know, there's lots of degrees of freedom there. You can change your coordination. Uh, so people can increase their pulling. They can push over the top. They can pull across the bottom. Uh, and when they do that, that improves a um, measure called pedal force efficient, uh, I'm sorry, pedal force effectiveness, uh, which means how much of the pedal force you produce is perpendicular to the crank so that it, it's producing torque. Um, and when every study that's done that has shown that um, changing from your preferred or natural uh, technique is Im improves effectiveness, but decreases efficiency, uh, and and not by a little, by by you know up to ten percent, um, and that that has to do with a couple of things. Um, you know when you when you when you help your four year old get started on a bike the very first time, 
that kid pedals right away, doesn't he? Or she. And and pretty high cadence even. Like off they go with, with their little beginner bike gear. They they know how to pedal. And and they know that because because they're utilizing, you know, spinal cord level motor programs that have developed over, you know, millions of years as as we have evolved. And those those do a very good job of coordinating uh, muscles among joints, uh, in particular biarticular muscles. So like hamstring uh, spans the hip and the knee, and, and that gets a little more complicated. Um, but, but you're taking advantage of these spinal cord level programs that know how to coordinate muscles. And as soon as you uh, change that, you're disrupting those synergies um, we, we, we think it's most likely uh, has to do with, uh, you know, changing from extension to flexion or flexion to extension. You have to turn that, that muscle group off uh, far enough in advance. And if you're really emphasizing it, we, we think it probably stays on longer uh, and therefore causes negative uh, power on, on the, uh, once you reach the other, uh, either extension or flexion. Um, there's another aspect which is really interesting uh, out of Walter Herzog's lab up in Calgary. Um, he had, so he put cyclists on an ergometer with the cranks locked in place. And they did isometric contractions at, at various points around the um, crank cycle. And in, in one instruction, he just said, push as hard as you can. And they did. And of course, pushing as hard as you can, they produced a lot of force and it wasn't necessarily all oriented perpendicular to the crank, you know, far, far from it actually. But then if you take the, the, um, the vector that was there, the portion of that force that was perpendicular to the crank, well, let's just, we'll start with that. We'll call that a hundred. Well, then, then if you, um, give them another instruction, which is produce as much force as you can perpendicular to the crank. Well, then they do that. And, and their force is less, as you might expect, because this, you know, now they're trying to control the force a little bit. But not only is the overall force less, the, the, the force component that's perpendicular to the crank is actually less. <laughs> so, so, so by just pushing, <laughs> just doing your, your coordinated leg extension, uh, you produce more force and it's, it's more efficient. Wow. So don't mess with it really. Just let your legs do what they've been programmed to do over generations of evolution. Yes. Sounds, yes. sounds pretty simple. I like it, that. It, and, and the, the, that's, but that's why it's a problem because a coach, no, no one's going to pay a coach to say, do, do what comes naturally. Um, no, nobody's going to buy a book that says do what comes naturally, although they should, uh, instead they're going to, you know, they're going to pay for coaching. That's very elegant and complicated. And, oh my God, I, I used to work with a coach named Skip Cutting and everything he prescribed for his athletes was so complicated, just painfully complicated. Um, and so that, I think that's an example. And he was a well-paid coach, right? <laughs> um, anyway, sorry. Sorry, Skip, yeah. if you're hearing this. Um, no. Yeah, no, I, I understand 100%. Um, 
one other thing that you talk about in some of your papers is the concept of metabolic cost. So can you define that for us before we get into a couple questions on metabolic cost? Sure. Yeah. So, so when you're, we, we typically, the way you get at that is you measure oxygen uptake and every um, liter of oxygen you consume liberates a total of about five kcals of energy. And, you know, so you can go through some conversion factor and, and, and get how many joules that is and over time, how many watts that is in metabolic power. Uh, and then, of course, you can also measure the, the cycling power. And so now you've got two values. One is metabolic power and the other was mechanical power. And you simply divide the two. Uh, and like, as I think I mentioned earlier, uh, efficiency is generally somewhere around, you know, 18 to 20 something, 25 percent. Um, and and, the, you know, the 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 metabolic power you consume that doesn't get turned into mechanical work is it goes into heat, which is why you get hot and sweaty when you exercise. Um, and yeah, so so metabolic cost or metabolic power is is just the so power is the rate at which you're consuming that energy and uh, cost is, is sometimes done as, you know, total oxygen consumed or total joules of metabolic power, metabolic uh, work. So one of the things you talk about in one of your papers is the concept of uh, pedaling rate and how it influences muscle shortening velocity and then the frequency of muscle activation and relaxation. So if I'm understanding that correctly, a higher cadence is going to increase the shortening velocity, and it's also going to increase the frequency of muscle activation and relaxation. That's, is yes. that true? Okay, that's right. good. I'm understanding that. So then what does that do to metabolic cost? If, if you have a higher cadence versus a, a lower cadence, are you expending more because you're, you know, firing faster or does it sort of balance itself out because you're producing less power because you have a higher cadence? Okay. Yeah. Oof. Or less force, okay, that, not power. That's, that's inaccurate. Less force. Yeah. Uh, so oof. now is this the graduate muscle fizz version or, uh, <laughs> which whatever you want it to be. That's what we're here to listen uh, to. Uh, all right. Uh, yes. So, so, so the faster you pedal, the, the higher cadence you pedal, uh, your, your muscles will have to shorten faster. And muscles have a force velocity curve, uh, which is pretty high at isometric, and then it decreases pretty rapidly once the muscle starts shortening. Uh, it's a hyperbolic equation. And um, so the, the faster uh, you cycle, the less force you can produce. But that's not the same as power. And so power is the product of force and velocity. And so it turns out that, um, you know, as I said earlier, power peaks at about half of your maximum pedaling rate. Uh, so for instance, 125 RPM, the, the, so someone like that could probably do 250 uh, if you took the chain off and just asked them to, to pedal as fast as you can. By the way, listeners do not do that. I've done that. And you, you, you've heard of delayed onset muscle soreness. Well, this is not delayed. Uh, you, you will be injured. Yeah, you will be sore as soon as you stop. So don't, don't take your chain off. Um, 
Uh, where was I going with that? So, so, so that's one thing you, you, you decrease force by increasing shortening velocity. The other thing that I think is a lot uh, less well understood is that within a crank cycle, actually within half a crank cycle, you have to turn a muscle on, then it has to produce force while it shortens, and then you have to relax it. And, and that turns out to be really important, the relaxation, because if, if you don't relax it, then it does negative work when you get to the other portion of the, of the uh, cycle. So, you know, you turn your extensors on, you actually turn them on just a little bit before you start leg extension uh, so that they can be ramped up and ready to produce force. And then they produce force while they shorten. And then you actually have to turn them off fairly far in advance of when they're, they reach their minimum length and then start to go undergo what you hope to be passive lengthening again. Um, because the, and that's a lot slower than activation. Uh, and it turns out that that's really important uh, in uh, maximal power. And I, I, I believe it's important in efficiency, although I don't have uh, direct data to support that. Excellent. That is, uh, that's good to know. Let's move on to joints. So another large, um, area of your work is, is studying joints and how that relates to pedaling and pedaling efficiency. So let's just start with what joints we use when we power the pedals and what role they each play. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so obviously ankle, knee and hip. Um, and the, if we're talking well, if we're talking about maximal cycling and uh, submaximal, but in experienced cyclists, uh, then hip extension is the dominant power producing action, um, uh, followed by knee extension, uh, and then knee flexion, uh, and then uh, ankle extension or, or plantar flexion um, in, in order. So, so the the, you know, the, the butts have it, if you will, uh, and, the, and then the quads, and then the hamstrings, <laughs> uh, and then the calves. Okay, so if you are on the bike, and let's say you're pedaling, and you feel like your legs, your, you know, your quads are just on fire, they're burning, is that because you are not using your hip properly? Or, you know, you hear all these different people, oh, my calves are sore, or my... my you know, my butt hurts or my, my, my quads are sore. Does that have anything to do with your efficiency or the use of your joints when you're cycling? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so we, we have recently uh, been working with athletes who have undergone uh, ACL reconstruction, anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction. And so, so these are, lots of them are football players, lacrosse players, soccer, and they don't own bikes. They haven't owned bikes since childhood. And um, they do not really use hip very much when, when they cycle for us. Um, they, they are very knee extension dominant. Um, so it's, you know, I, I guess that qualifies as evidence that beginners um, tend to use their knee more and then more experienced cyclists, uh, will use their hip more. And, and actually now I think about it, that's, 
Jeff Broker's dissertation, um, he had cyclists versus triathletes, but it was in the very early days of triathlon. And so most triathletes were novices. Uh, and so he showed that cyclists use more hip than, than triathletes, uh, and which I think was just experience. Um, sorry. So, so anyway, but, but then in an unrelated, uh, study, um, uh, Ernie Reimer, who's, who's now director of sports science at the university of Utah, uh, we, we were looking at, uh, how, how cyclists use their handlebars. And it turns out that, uh, you can give a very, very simple instruction that has nothing to do with pedaling technique, but you can change how people pedal. And, and that simple instruction is put less weight on your handlebars. And the, the reason that that changes how you pedal is because that, that means that you have to put some muscular extension into your torso to lift it off the bars, or at least unweight the bars. And, you know, that, that on the other side of the joint, on the other side of the hip joint, a torso extension moment becomes a hip extension moment. And, and, and so when we gave this simple instruction, uh, they uh, significantly increased the contribution of the hip extension action. So I think, you know, that's not a coaching um, tip that I've ever heard. Uh, but I, I think, you know, if you look around in, in the Peloton and, and you see guys shaking out their hands, uh, that's probably because they're, they're quad dominant. Um, and, and like you said, their quads are burning. That would be a good chance to attack those guys. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that. I think about sitting up off of the handlebars and just riding with no hands. And I'm just thinking through it in my head how different that feels from a, a muscle activation perspective. And it is very different. You know, you're, you're putting less weight, which makes sense. You, you have to engage different muscles. Fascinating. That's a cool study. Is there any difference in joint usage during submaximal or maximal cycling? Does that change in any way? Um, you know, a little bit. Uh, so if, so we've done that. Uh, we looked at power outputs of uh, between 250 uh, and 850 watts submaximally. Uh, yes, people can do 850 watts without sprinting. Uh, that was actually really tricky. You had to hit that power and then hold it until we got the data collected, which is uh, kind of challenging. But anyway, uh, across that range and including uh, maximal sprinting, uh, you, you really don't change uh, the relative contribution of the hip extension. Uh, there's a minor difference when you go to uh, the full sprint. But, um, but in, in contrast, uh, knee extension power, the, the contribution of the knee extension, so just percentage-wise, um, that decreased dramatically uh, as you got to higher and higher power. So, so the, the lower power, the 250 watt, had more knee power. Now, that knee power still, knee extension power, it still wasn't as high as hip extension power, but from 250 on out to the sprint, the relative contribution of the knee extension uh, decreased, uh, decreased about 28%, uh, whereas knee flexion power, uh, as you go from 250 to a sprint, that, that increased linearly, and that, that 
um, uh, increase slightly more than 100%, so, so about double uh, when you sprint versus um, uh, when you uh, pedal submaximally. What about men and women? Do you see any difference? You know, you think about the hip structure, you know, women generally have a higher Q angle than men or can. Um, any difference there from a joint activation perspective from men and women? I, I honestly haven't followed uh, that literature. The one study that I'm aware of uh, is uh, from a, a um, Nick Flieger in Australia. Uh, and he... He had um, uh, he had maximal power, and he had uh, I- imaging data on uh, muscle mass in the lower lower uh, in the legs, legs and butt. And when you took their power and divided it by their muscle volume, he saw absolutely no difference between men and women. So so that suggests that the differences that you normally see in men and women really are, you know, at least for sprinting, are due to muscle mass. Uh, and by extension, probably means that when you see um, endurance powers that are different, it probably relates to their differences in cardiovascular function. Have you ever looked at, you know, if we go back to, you know, ride your bike, ride your bike, ride your bike, um, you know, three rules to get faster. Have you ever studied a new cyclist versus uh, an experienced cyclist, or you studied a, a cyclist over time to understand how the joints change. Like, does a new cyclist uh, have a, a less efficient use of their, their joints and, and muscles versus somebody who's experienced? Um, well, I haven't done that, but uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in these non-bike owner um, athletes, uh, we do see that they are more uh, knee dominant in submaximal cycling. Now, I will I will also say that in my in my uh, dissertation way back, actually my master's thesis, God, um, uh, I re- I compared cyclists and non bike owners uh, during maximal sprinting, and the the non bike owners, uh, you know, normalized to body mass, they were less powerful on day one, but by day three, uh, they were actually more powerful <laughs> and, and their power was, was peaking out at a higher cadence uh, compared to the cyclists. And I think that's because they were, you know, team sport, explosive, explosive sport type athletes as opposed to, and so, so probably fast twitchers, um, as opposed to you know the endurance cyclists that we uh, recruited, you know there's no there's no velodrome in Austin, so I I had very limited access to sprinters, and and so so I, I think what the point there is in that study we gave them four sprints per day, and by the third day they had completely learned how to sprint, uh, and then they 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 were more more powerful than the not the cyclists. Uh, and then they didn't change when when we gave them another week of practice, and that that actually suggests. And I think you you uh, when we talked earlier, you were going to bring up the the work loop paper, but that that suggests that even non cyclists, when they go maximally, they're probably using their spinal cord level programs, and they know how to coordinate 
uh, maximal power within just a few total seconds of practice, right? So 12 seconds a day, you know, four sprints, three seconds. So 24 seconds. By, by 36 seconds, they fully knew how to sprint. <laughs> <laughs> it's a quick adaption to uh, learning to sprint. So what about fatigue? You know, this is something that, you know, you go out for a, or you're racing or you're just even on a long ride. Four hours in, you know, you feel fresh when you get on the bike, you're getting off the bike. Fatigue is obviously set in. Does that change the joint activation? Does it shift around? Does it change over time? Uh, so the study that, that we've done on that topic is in 30-second uh, all-out sprinting. And um, I probably need to preface that a little bit. Well, maybe not. So, so what we saw there is that the the ankle extension action, plantar flexion, which is is you know ten ten percent more or less of total power, that decreases rapidly, like within within the first few seconds, which is which is confusing because those ankle plantar flexors should be pretty fatigue resistant. Um, but but anyway, you you lose. Um, Ankle extension power first, uh, then you start to lose more uh, knee extension, then knee flexion, uh, and and finally hip extension. Uh, hip extension is the most fatigue resistant. Um, and one one of the, the reason that um, that ankle extension turns out to be really important, even though it's it's only ten percent or so. Um, oh. When when we did that study where we we measured from 250 to max sprint, what we found was was that um, as you go to higher and higher powers, you change the way you ankle. And uh, th th this will sound like I'm crazy, but I'm not. It's it's solid data. Um, you change by changing the way you ankle. You actually change the portion of the cycle in which you're in extension uh, versus flexion. Uh, so when, when you study, uh, when you cycle submaximally, um, you're in the extension action for about 182 degrees and in the flexion action uh, for only 178. Uh, when you sprint maximally, you're in leg extension action for 192 degrees, right? And in flexion uh, for uh, 168. And so that's really important because you've prolonged the amount of time you can spend in the powerful leg extension action um, and minimize the time you spend in the less powerful uh, leg flexion action. Uh, so, so they're simply, they, they, you, you actually uh, uh, accomplish what non-round chain rings claim to, but don't. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> so again, I, if we think about training ourselves, let's say I'm a quad dominant cyclist. Can I train myself to be more of a, you know, glute dominant, hip dominant cyclist is there is there any benefit to that 
Or is it just like when we look at it from a pedaling efficiency perspective, just get on and ride your bike? Yeah. So, so sadly, we have never gotten around to following up on Ernie's study and looking at either performance or efficiency. Um, but, but just to, to apply his study to your question, uh, if you want to engage your hip more, then um, just unweight your hands. Uh, you can, as a little drill, simply lift, lift your hands a couple of millimeters off the bars. Don't crash, uh, please. But um, yeah, if you can unweight that hand, I guess be alert for numb hands. The minute you feel numb hands, you know you're, you've been pedaling with your quads and so unweight it a little bit. And, um, and that will, that will um, uh, increase hip, hip recruitment. And the reason that might be important is that if you can spread the work around to a greater muscle mass or muscle volume, then any fiber or any, any small area is going to um, experience less metabolic stress, so produce less lactate and be less fatiguing or, or become fatigued less. So, um, yeah, I think there is a good, and then there's also work by um, uh, Coyle, who actually, does he have the data or does he, maybe it's just in his, his discussion. He, he believes that the more experienced cyclists uh, use their hip more, and that, that would go along with, with, you know, what we've seen of cyclists versus uh, non-bike owners. Yeah, for sure. So you, you've got so much uh, excellence things that you've done, and there's there's I'm sure we could have three or four podcasts on all of the things that you've done. There's just a couple others that I just kind of want you to talk uh, quickly about, and these I'm going to throw these in the general questions. Um, you have a paper that discusses simulated work loops that are used to predict maximal human cycling power. Can you give us a quick rundown on on what that is and just and what that means? Oh, that's a challenge. Um, yeah, so a work loop uh, just means that you, uh, let, let's say you've, you, you're doing some sort of an animal preparation and you uh, have the muscle on a, a small dynamometer uh, and, and you've got a servo motor that, that, let, that lengthens and shortens that muscle, uh, which is what we do, right? It's, it's exactly what we do when we cycle. It's what birds do when they fly it's what fish do when they swim um, and um, so you have to turn that muscle on such that it produces force while it shortens you have to turn it off uh, so that it can relax before it undergoes lengthening again uh, and and this is a you know an experimental technique but it's been shown to almost exactly replicate uh, the way that birds fly, uh, guinea fowls when they take when they when they take off to avoid predation, uh, and then if you take their muscle out and you ma optimize it, it's exactly what they do when they beat their wings. Uh, the same same thing is true in in fish. You you know how you're you're standing on the edge of a creek and you see a fish, and you startle it, and it it does uh, an escape maneuver called a sea start. And, and when they do that, uh, they actually optimize the power of, of their muscles. Uh, 
So we wondered if that was true for cycling. And you, you, of course, you, you know, you can't, you can't take muscles out of a human and, and analyze them. Uh, so, so, but you can, you can do very accurate mathematical modeling. And so we did that. We um, took all 38 muscles that can flex or extend the leg and we, in the model, and we had them uh, shorten and lengthen uh, according to the patterns that they do when you cycle, which has to do with, you know, the crank length, your leg length, and what's called muscle tendon moment arm and, and some other factors. So, so when you do that, when we did that, we, we, we optimized the timing to turn the muscle on and to turn muscle off. Uh, and then we, we stacked all those force traces back together, converted them to torque through the muscle tendon moment arm, converted that to power through the joint angular velocity. And I hope I'm speaking English. Um, and, and then, and when we did that, we summed them all up about the joint, the hip and the knee looked exactly like cyclists look when they sprint. Um, the, the correlation was over 0.9, uh, the, the, the R squared value, uh, and the coefficient of determination, I think was something like 0.94, which is just unheard of to, uh, to be that, to be that accurately representative that the ankle was reasonably represented, uh, was, was well represented during the extension phase, but not during the leg flexion phase. And, and the reason for that is that there are, there are portions of the leg flexion phase when you could make positive uh, ankle extension power. But if you do, you'll, you'll drive the crank backwards. So the cyclist didn't do that. <laughs> so, so, so they, they weren't, the muscle wasn't optimized, but, but the cycling action was. I just got to say, you know, this is why everybody that I've talked to in the industry says so much, so many good things about you from a guy who's standing on a riverbank and sees a fish take off and then somehow puts that into a question to then develop a math model to prove that the same effects, a C, what you call it? A C, a C section, a C span, C, C start, C start is now also seen in humans. I, I, I just, I have a lot of respect for that. That's a, that's a very cool oh. conclusion to come up with. So, so thank you for well, that. Well, thank you. I, I, I love my job. I, I oftentimes can't believe I get paid to do what I do because it's just so much fun. I feel the same way. We, we, we share that a lot. Um, one question that we always ask every guest, and I can't wait to hear your answer on this, is if the cyclist on the show takes all of your advice and we is to apply it, we, we always use somebody as a benchmark. Somebody has a 300-watt FTP. They're athletic. They've, you know, they've done some training, but there's room for improvement. If they were to take all of your advice in this situation, how much do you think you could add to their FTP based on, um, this, the information that you've talked about from, um, pedaling efficiency, joint use, and all those different things? You know, it's hard to say if I could add anything or not, um, but but there are three areas where we're where we might. Um, so if the cyclist in question is uh, is well trained at a you know 
circular pedaling technique, then having that person stop doing that and go back to stomping uh, could improve their efficiency by up to 10%. So from 300 to 330 watts would be that, that, um, that one. And by the way, uh, I, I should mention, we didn't, we didn't talk about this very much. I, I think you had some questions, but we, we skipped over them. Let, let me just talk, talk briefly about, um, no, no, we, we, we did talk about that when you pull up, you're less efficient. So I'm sorry, I skipped over one study that we recently did that, that is really exciting. Um, the, the studies that show that if you pull up, you're less efficient, those are acute treatments. You come into the lab and we say, okay, now pedal this way. And they do, and they're less efficient. And the, 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 the people who argue against that say, well, that's an acute treatment. They didn't know how to do it. If you had let them practice for six months, uh, you know, and really refine their technique, uh, they'd actually be more efficient. And okay, fair enough, fair enough, possibly. Um, and so on, in an unbelievable coincidence, on one of my rides up, up the local canyon, um, I ran into a guy, I won't name him, but he's a four-time U.S. National Paralympic champion, and he's a complete femoral amputee. Uh, super nice guy, super smart, super powerful. I, he has to slow down to ride with me. Um, and he came into our lab one day and, and, um, we have a, a, a system that we use for some studies where we put a counterweight, uh, on one crank and let you pedal with the other leg. And, uh, the counterweight basically, um, uh, provides, um, the energy to lift your leg segment. So you don't have to lift it as much as you would pull up if you were just doing single leg cycling with your foot off the pedal. Am I making any sense there? Yeah, totally. Okay. So, so 10, 10 kilogram counterweight on, on the crank. And so he came in and he, um, pedaled normally, which means, you know, single leg with no counterweight. And, you know, he had pretty fairly low efficiency, uh, high metabolic cost for his power. And then we, we put the counterweight on and let him go through the same protocol again. And his metabolic cost went down by about, I think it's 10 or 11%. Um, and it did that immediately. He didn't need any practice. Uh, and, and actually there, there's a, a, a almost tear jerking part to it. He's, as soon as he started pedaling, he, I, he, he dropped his head and looked down at the cranks and then he looked straight at me and he said, oh, this is so much easier. Um, <laughs> and and we, we know that, right? It's, it's hard to do single leg drills. So maybe because it's hard, you think if you do it, you'll get better, but it, but it's just hard. <laughs> and so, so this, so this guy's, this guy's efficiency went up by about I think 10 or 11%, 10, 10.8, maybe uh, I have to look at the paper, but that's exactly how much efficiency goes down in other studies when they tell them to pull up. So, so it's, it's, it's a very profound uh, finding. Um, okay. So, so 
So yes, I think if they've been if they've been trained to pull up and they stop that, uh, that their power could go up about ten percent. The other thing that we oh sorry, I was just going to say this is one of the best watt point answers we've ever had because if you've been really thinking about pedaling too much, if you just chill out and relax and pedal normally, which really isn't a lot to do. You could be giving yourself 10%. So you're getting 10% for, for doing less work. That's the best wild yeah. point answer we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Um, so the other part has to do with um, uh, short cranks or crank length. And um, because crank length doesn't affect power and it doesn't affect efficiency, that means you're free to choose any crank length for any reason. Uh, and so the case in point is that basically anybody 5'10 or under or fairly stocky muscular sprinter type person cannot get a horizontal torso position with 170 or 172.5 cranks. They just won't be able to uh, because their thigh will be hitting them in the gut or, or the lean, lean torso doesn't have to be a gut. Um, and so they're at, they're, they, they have to have compromised aerodynamics uh, because of their, this relatively long crank for their leg. And so the simple, and, and, and that, that does two things actually. Not only does it um, compromise the aerodynamics, but it actually restricts blood flow. Uh, when you get this really acute hip angle. And so, and that's actually why you hear about the power arrow trade-off. If you sit up more, you have more power. If you get too low, you get compromised power. Uh, now it turns out that it's always, you should always err on the side of more arrow uh, because the compromise in power is pretty small compared to the benefits of arrow. But anyway, that's separate. If you simply go to shorter cranks, now you can get a very arrow uh, low torso position uh, and not have your thighs up in your chest. Um, and, and I'll just give you the example. I'm 5'8 uh, and about 156 pounds. And not, not long ago, I set up a time trial bike uh, to be UCI legal. And in order for me to get a really nice horizontal torso, uh, I had to go to 145 millimeter cranks to, to still be able to pedal well. And, you know, nobody does that or not very many people, uh, people over on slow twitch will, but, but that's about it. Um, but I know it won't hurt my power and I know it will help my aerodynamics and I know it will not give me blood flow restriction that'll compromise my power. So, so I guess the second point would be if everybody under 510 tried 155 or 145 uh, millimeter cranks uh, and then adjusted their aerodynamics or their their elbow position, um, they might find e even more than 10% gains because they might be reducing their aerodynamic drag by a lot uh, and not compromising their power. Excellent. Listen, J Jim, I, I just can't thank you enough for being on here. You've been a wealth of knowledge. Thank you again for all of your uh, your insight, and it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for listening to Faster. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Leave a review or teach a friend what you learned today. For more great episodes on getting faster, subscribe to this podcast. While you're on your next ride, be kind to one another and ride safe. Thank you.